Well, class, it is Sunday morning, November 15th, halfway through the month. Welcome to our class. So apologies to those of you who tried to log in at 9.15 last week. We had a little glitch technologically, and, uh, and the class was not recorded. It, it, it went on. So if you want to look at the diagram I put together on the Christian life, the foundation, union with Christ, the logic, um, you know, be who you are, the method put off, put on. If you have questions about that, feel free to just call me and we can talk about it. I can set up a Zoom call with you. I have the ability to send you a Zoom link. If you have any questions about it, please let me bless you. If, if that would help you, I'd love to do that. So we are at um, Romans 8. We're just going to look at 17 today. We're going we're to start a little section here for a couple weeks on suffering. And I want to, uh, Joe, if you've looked at the handout that was on the webpage, I've edited slightly what I'm going to pull up on screen share. So don't be, don't be alarmed if what you see on screen share is slightly different than maybe what you're taking notes on. But let me pray for us and then I'll pull up the, uh, the handout. Our Father, we rejoice in your presence this morning because you're the God of life, the God of resurrection, the God of hope, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the man of sorrows, who suffered so, and left an example for us to follow in his steps. Lord, we enter into very, uh, very, very um, precarious, just, just um, we enter territory that is near and dear to our hearts because we've all suffered, we all will suffer. And so we pray for grace through the Holy Spirit to teach us, to inform us, to help us dispel from our minds false ideas, take the truth and board into our souls and capture our imaginations with the word of God, we pray. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. It is no small joy to be joined together, if uh, even not in person through this Zoom call. We're so grateful. Take and use it for our edification, that in all things you might be glorified in our lives, in our thought, word, and deed. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So I'm going to screen share, and I'm going to hit that guy there. I'm going to make myself smaller. There you go, friends. I'll read Romans 8, 17 to 23, and then we'll start working through the handout. Paul writes, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And as I said, we'll look really just this morning at verse 17, which helps frame our discussion of suffering. 
Let's start with the question, what's new? One of the things we've seen in our study, beginning in Romans 5 into 8, is that because of our union with Christ, everything's new. All new kinds of relationships. New relationship to sin, to ourselves, to God, to one another, to the world, the devil. Here we want to stress a new inheritance and a new calling. What's the new inheritance? Well, Paul writes in 17, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is the certainty of our future salvation. God wants his children living with certainty that their future, their glory, heaven, eternal life, living forever in the presence of God with one another without sin, suffering, pain, sorrow, it is certain, it's certain he doesn't want you going to sleep at night wondering whether or not you're going to get there. So the foundational relational dynamic with our God is intimacy. This comes out in the prior verses where we saw the Spirit has come to our hearts and by the Holy Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is Aramaic for Daddy. You couldn't get more intimate in your relationship with your father than to call him Daddy, this is a privilege we have in union with Christ to address our Heavenly Father as Daddy. What's implied in that, as we've seen in the last couple weeks, is acceptance, access, and assurance. Why does Paul turn his attention to the future? The reason is because the fundamental outlook of the New Testament, now here's a 50 cent theological word for you, is eschatological. Eschatology, from the Greek word eschatos, which means last, is the study of last things or end times or the study of the future. And when you read through the New Testament, there is a decisive tenor or tone that is constantly pointing you forward. So the outlook is eschatological. What Jesus has done in a sense, has ushered into the present, the future, but we're looking to the future for the ultimate goal of our lives. Why is that? And incidentally, the, New the Old Testament is the same way, right? The Old Testament is a book of longing, yearning, aching. It's, it's, it's a book that's incomplete on its own because it makes promises that are yet to be fulfilled. When we open the Gospels, the Gospels are essentially, hey, everything God promised was gonna happen, is now happening in Jesus Christ. Now that we belong to Christ, we have certain promises we've, we've embraced, but we're also still looking forward. So both Testaments are essentially uh, books that cast our vision forward. We are a people in waiting. Think of that song we sing on Jordan's stormy banks, we stand. While well, the Old Testament people of God stood on Jordan's stormy, Jordan stormy banks waiting to come into the promised land, we too in this life are waiting to go into the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. So think about the way Jesus speaks of this. John 14, 3, he promises to go prepare a place for us. And he says that where I am, you may be also. God wants you in his presence. Jesus purchased you to enjoy you in his physical presence. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like with millions and millions and millions of people in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know how we all simultaneously get access to the physical body of Jesus, but somehow we will because we're going to see him face to face and we're going to be like him. 
The point is, Jesus wants us where he is. That's why he came to suffer for us, to have a family, boys and girls, red and yellow, black and white, from every tribe and tongue, who enjoy his presence and whose presence he enjoys. He wants us where he is. Praying to his father in John 17. What is he pleading with his father? He says in John 17, 24, I desire that they may be with me where I am. And of course, the path to that glory, us enjoying the presence of Jesus forever, the presence of God basking in his light, that path was through his cross. There was first sufferings and then there was glory. And so we're going to see that's exactly the same pattern for us, but that's point number two. I get ahead of myself. Notice then how Paul writes in 17, and if we're children, so he's carrying on the thought from 15 and 16, the doctrine of adoption, if we're children, then heirs. Children by rule are heirs of what their parents leave them. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. What is God's is ours. And since Jesus is the Son of God and we're in union with him, that makes us sons and daughters of the living God. What Jesus inherits, we inherit. And of course, best of all, we inherit him. He is ours. Compare that then to the old inheritance that is stressed in the Old Testament. What was the inheritance, the, the thematic inheritance of the Old Testament? It was the land of promise. What was the point of the exodus? Let my people go that they may come and worship me. God wanted to get his people back in the land of promise. Why was there an exodus coming out of Babylon to get his people back in the land of promise? There's an immense focus in the Old Testament on the land. But when you come into the New Testament and use the New Testament hermeneutical grid for understanding what that meant, you realize that the Old Testament land, the land of Palestine, is just a prototype of the new heavens and the new earth. You see this even as the writer of Hebrews describes Abraham. He's the one to whom God first made the promise of the land, right? He made the promise of the land to Abraham, Genesis 12, 15, and 17. Notice how the writer of Hebrews uh, allows you to understand Abraham's perspective on the land. I'm looking at Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance. God called Abraham to go into the land of Israel, the land of Palestine. That was going to be his inheritance. As he went out, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. Now, here's a very interesting phrase. As in a foreign land. Well, wait a minute. I was called out of a foreign land to the land of promise. Israel and Egypt was called out of a foreign land into the promise. When they were in exile in Babylon, they were called out of a foreign land into the promise. But wait, Abraham goes into the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now here's why the writer of Hebrews can call that as in a foreign land. Verse 10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham understood in some way that the land of promise was a mere prototype of the new heavens and the new earth. We will live in cities built by whom? God himself. So this is one reason why 
we non-dispensational theologians don't put a ton of stock into the reclaiming of the nation of Israel in 1948 and Israel coming back into the land and our dispensational brothers were saying, see, this is fulfilling promises because God has promised that Israel would get back into the land. And we see, well, just a second. We're not sure we completely understand all that providence. I'm glad Israel's there as a stable presence in the Middle East. That's a different question. But the Old Testament land serves as a prototype of the new heavens and the new earth. I'd rather have that than current uh, modern-day Palestine, as lovely as it is in some places. If you've been there, you know that. All right, I digress a little bit. So, the old inheritance, the land of promise, do we get something better? The whole earth renewed, never subjected to the fall. And you get a hint of this. I'm reading in my devotions this week in Matthew. And let me just say, one of the reasons I'm, I'm in my devotions, I spread out in my reading. I start with a psalm. I, of course, I read, read Proverbs 15 this morning. Uh, then I read uh, somewhere in the Gospels. And then uh, some, I'm also in uh, 1 Samuel, not, you know, in the Old Testament that is in Proverbs or Psalms. And then on Gospels and then non-Gospels. So I'm in, actually in uh, the end of Revelation. But one of the reasons it's beneficial to read the Gospels on a regular basis is you're confronted with the cross, the cross every month. You're going to read about Christ's sufferings. And uh, just reading in my devotions the other day, in Matthew, when Jesus is being crucified, we're told the earth quakes. The earth is quaking. You might say the very earth Jesus created can't bear up under the, the, the weight of the agony of the Son of God being crucified. Or you could say the earth is beginning those first birth pangs of the new creation. Because Christ's death and resurrection and ascension are this signal events that are beginning the renewal of all things. And so maybe those are birth pangs. And if you read Matthew's account, and the next verse or two says that at his resurrection, saints came out of their tombs in Jerusalem. What? <laughs> yes. So here is a foretaste of the final resurrection. Well, all that to say, and we'll see it in subsequent uh, lessons here, of how, what an intimate connection there is between the earth itself and the redemption of God's people. We are waiting for something better than the land of promise. That is the whole, the whole earth, as 2 Peter 3 says, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness reigns. There'll be no sin, no sorrow, no sickness, no sadness, no death. Everything will be perfect. We'll have paradise restored, but in one sense better. What is that? With no possibility of forfeiting that paradise. No possibility of forfeiting it. So this is all guaranteed by Christ's victory and the inauguration of all things new. So that's, that's the new, uh, new inheritance. And, and, and now Peter, sorry, I'm preaching in Peter, so I'll probably call Peter Paul when I preach, and I'm calling Paul Peter while I teach. Then we have a new calling. Paul says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So in union with Christ, Christ's life is our pattern. You may remember that passage from uh, 1 Peter 2.21. Christ suffered for you leaving you an example 
that you should follow in his steps. And of course, how did he suffer? Without uttering threats, without reviling in return, we're called to suffer in the pattern of Jesus, which is a fundamental posture of grace and forgiveness towards our tormentors. It's just stunning. I mean, here's Jesus hanging on the cross in utter pain, saying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. We need to get that Christ-like DNA in us in order to suffer in the same pattern as Christ suffered. Jesus made it very clear to his disciples, you're going to suffer. Just one example is John 15, 18, where he says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So in union with Christ, his life pattern is ours. First is suffering, then comes the glory. First the suffering, then the glory. So let's look here at different types of suffering, just sort of a little diagram, comparing what it was like in a sinless world before the fall and what it's like in a fallen world. Was there suffering in paradise? Was there any suffering in the sinless world that God created? Did God create suffering as a part of his initial creation? Not a lick. Not an ounce, no suffering. And I wondered as I prepared this, was it possible that Adam and Eve running through paradise, what if they tripped on a vine and fell and scraped their knee? Was it possible that they'd even trip? I don't know. I don't think it's important that we answer that question. What's clear is that suffering is in the world. It, sin is in the world because of the fall. So what about in a fallen world? One way to describe suffering is to think of it in terms of alienation alienation at multiple levels. So we suffer because we're alienated from creation. That's why we have sickness. That's why we have calamity. That's why we have all these crazy storms. That's why there's famine. That's why there's lightning. That's, we're alienated from creation. It will not be the case in the new heavens and the new earth. We're alienated from ourselves. Sin alienates us from our true self. As a result of living in a fallen world, we're aging. Now, not all aging is bad. Kids that are 9, 10, 11, they want to get older, and that's fine. It's a good thing. But I mean the kind of aging that brings with it suffering and difficulty and having a hard time remembering, getting along, et cetera, et cetera. We're alienated from God. Our pride alienates us from God. As a result, we're going to die. We're alienated from others. There's strife in human relationships. We sin against others. This is not the world God created. This is because sin is in the world, uh, and this is a type of suffering. It's, it's suffering to, to be sinned against by other people. And in terms of the non-redeemed entities in the world, we suffer by being um, attacked by Satan, by other people, and because we identify with Jesus Christ, we're persecuted. So this one category to think about suffering, and that is alienation. The fall has brought about alienation at all these different levels. How do we handle suffering? Just a simple little overview. Some people deny it. They go into denial. There's a world religion that says uh, suffering is an illusion. I can't imagine why someone would think that, but I'll move on. People, uh, some people run and medicate. This is very easy to do in our culture because our culture gives us a plethora of things to medicate the ways that we suffer. Some people seek out suffering. They, they thrive on conflict. They become a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Uh, they, they get into situations where they do dumb things and they're criticized or whatever and they say, see, that's the way people are. But they kind of created it themselves. The way we're supposed to, according to this verse, Paul says, 
as we are to consider and compare. He says in 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, suffering is real as we're about to see in the handout. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, as significant as they are, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed. I'll unpack the second half of that verse next week if we get through the handout today. But let's do what he tells us to do. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time. So let's consider sufferings. Answering this question, how does Christianity put suffering and trials in perspective? And I just want to run through a number of things. Number one, let's affirm our natural disdain for suffering. The reason you don't like pain, the reason you don't like being in want, the reason you don't like suffering is you weren't made for it. God made you for a pleasureful, peaceful, perfect paradise without a hint of sorrow or pain. Just You, know, you might say, well, what, were, what were nerve endings for in the Garden of Eden? I don't know, but we weren't created for pain. Pain is a result of the fall. So you long to live under those conditions. It's why one of the biggest industries in America is the pain relief industry. And another industry is the anti-aging industry. We are forever fighting against the fact that we're getting older and we're going to die. <laughs> Just look at where people spend their money. They spend their money trying to undo the obvious. <laughs> so you long for life under those conditions. You long for pleasure, for peace, for perfection. Of course you do. What is it that grates against your soul? The opposite of these things. So that explains why the psalmists so readily cry out for deliverance from peril. If you read through the psalms, these guys are saying, deliver me, God. My enemies are after me. Strike them. Stop them. Uh, I was in the pit. I was dying, and God rescued me. It's a good thing that God rescued me from dying. Wait a minute. Isn't it a good thing to die and go be with Jesus? Yes but it's also a good thing to be delivered. This is why we pray for the sick. This is why we pray for people in hospitals. Okay, so there's this tension that we live with. But you read through the Psalms and you see the Psalms are looking for God's deliverance because they weren't made for a world with suffering. Next thing we want to affirm, the utter brokenness of life in a fallen world. Life is broken. And in the history of the world and compared comparing America today to other places in the world, we have it really, 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 really good. Not many of us woke up this morning fearing for the safety of our borders because we have a fantastic military. Not many of us rolled out of bed this morning wondering, is there any food in the refrigerator? Now, if you did, please contact our deacons. We want to remedy that immediately. There are officers in the church given to serve and to help meet those tangible needs of yours. But who worries that there's going to be enough food until COVID, right? Remember how shocked you were going into the grocery stores in April, seeing shelves empty where you normally saw an abundance of food and never thought about it? Wow! Well, some people in this world live that way constantly in other parts of the world. How many people in the world go to bed hungry? None of us, I would imagine, have gone to bed hungry by, uh, except for by choice. 
So the utter brokenness of life in this world, how amazing that things work as well as they do and that we don't experience greater suffering and pain. And this, of course, is due to God's common grace. You know, you're driving around the beltway, people are going crazy speeds, and you wonder, why are there more wrecks? It's, it's really, it's just amazing. Why isn't there more sickness? Why aren't there more deaths? Anyway, I think we should be amazed and we should cast our gratitude towards the God who cares for this fallen world, even though it's in rebellion against him, even though it hates him, he nonetheless sends the rain, his reign on the just and the unjust. He is gracious towards the evil as well as the good. Followers of Jesus embrace a picture of suffering which tends, uh, excuse, which helps them endure and not despair. <clears throat> and what is that? Well, let's admit frankly, none of us really enjoys suffering. We recoil from the notion that God ordained suffering for us. How could he? Isn't suffering bad? We tend to think that way. And so trials easily tempt the heart to bitterness. How often have you said, why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? Do you know how much this hurts God? Now, all of us have said that, have said that to one degree or another. Okay? We recoil from the notion that God would ordain suffering for us. And so I want to I call to your attention how your starting point in your thinking can color the way you assess your sorrows. For example... If you sort of start with the fundamental attitude, maybe not even consciously, but you start with the attitude, I demand better. I don't deserve to suffer. I demand, and that's a proud thing. Uh, then you're going to look at suffering in a negative way. You're, going to, you're not going to embrace suffering as something God has ordained for you. But what's the reality? What's the only thing you can demand God give you? Justice and judgment. That's the only thing we can rightfully demand from God. That he doesn't give it to us means we live alone by mercy. So if you start with, I deserve, I, you know, I demand this, you're going to assess your suffers, sufferings in a very different way than, what do I deserve? This is the humble heart. Well, I've been rescued from hell. Anything else is pure gravy. Right? Right? If you started every day because of the death of Christ I've been, and his resurrection, I've been rescued from hell. Then you can endure virtually anything. Anything else is gravy. So everything we have is a gift of God's amazing, gracious hand. So I'm just challenging you. Look at your starting point. Look at the lens through which you begin to assess your suffering. And that might account for why uh, there might be bitterness and your heart towards it. So see, the humble live in concert with what the Bible asserts about trials. And I just want to uh, show you a number of things the Bible asserts about our trials. The point is, if we're considering our sufferings, and again, we'll do the comparing part of the glory to be revealed uh, next week if we get there. We just want to see what are we supposed to consider about our sufferings? Well, the humble live in, uh, excuse me, God ordains trials for our good to produce maturity and hope. James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's kind of the all-encompassing, whatever kind of trial you meet. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So what is a trial ultimately about? It has its eye on your faith. There's a testing of your faith for a purpose. It's to produce a grace, steadfastness. Somebody needs to uh, hit their, their mute button there. 
thank you, make sure you're muted. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now I look at that verse and I say, okay, what's more important to me? Being spiritually mature, lacking nothing um, in terms of the resources God lavishes upon me, or being at ease from suffering. Well, humanly, I'd rather be at ease from suffering. That's because I'm choosing the wrong goal. James is saying, get something else in sight. Spiritual perfection, completeness, lacking nothing in terms of what the Lord gives you to endure, what the Lord gives you to reflect back to him his glory. And then we saw earlier in our study in Romans, Romans 5, 3 to 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces, see, here it is, suffering produces something. It's intended to have a positive fruit. It produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. That's the very thing we need in a fallen world. That's the very grace we need in suffering. Hope, a certain expectation that there will be a deliverance. The hope of glory, being in God's presence without any suffering forever. And hope doesn't put us to shame because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. I love the way Paul brings us from our trials and suffering, the need for endurance, it's producing character, to the love of God into our hearts. So that would really drive me to pray, Spirit of God, bring into my heart, make me more and more aware of God's love for me. That would be one of the Spirit's desires. Is to, um, is to make you aware of the love of God. And then basically what Paul does from then on is he shows you what the love of God looks like in action, how it was purchased for you through Christ. Yet, number two, some suffering seems unbearable, taking us to the brink of our very lives. So the Bible does not give you a stoic grin and bear it view of suffering. Not at all. Notice how profoundly realistic, honest, and vulnerable Paul is as he talks about his sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. What, how I want to introduce that, God purposes trials, however, to produce reliance upon his power, experience of his presence, hope in the resurrection, and visible answers to prayer. Incidentally, m many of us pray for the persecuted church. Well, pray those things to the persecuted church. I, one way I pray is that, that they would experience your presence like nothing before, that they'd have profound hope in the resurrection, uh, that they'd, they'd, they'd know that the nearness of God is better than life itself. And we need, we need that as well. But here's this uh, wonderful passage. You may recall that the prior verses Paul talks about him experiencing comfort, and one of the reasons God comforts him is so that he can comfort others in their affliction with the comfort with which he's been comforted. So God never has comfort as a cul-de-sac. So if you live, live at the end of a cul-de-sac, you drive home, you go into the driveway, you're home, you stop. No, no, comfort is designed to be passed on. God comforts you, you have this grace collateral to give to other people. But notice how he talks about despairing of life itself in 2 Corinthians 1. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Paul wants them to know about it. Why? It gives a certain measure of credibility to his ministry, and it may prompt them, prepare them for experiencing similar 
persecution. We don't want you to be unaware. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul is saying, I thought I was going to die. I had nothing left. That tank was empty. When I think back to the situation in Philippi where he was stoned and left for dead. Stoned and left for dead. Of course, he got up and went straight to Thessalonica from there, and he walked into town with these bruises and whatever else. But that probably means he was beaten so much that he was unconscious because people standing around him, well, he's dead. He's not moving. Beaten unconscious. Anyway, he despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Your time to die. This is it. Your time is up. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. I think that's a concession on Paul's part, that there's a part of him that had self-reliance, self-sufficiency. That's in your heart. That's in my heart. That's in Paul's heart. One of the ways God gets that addressed and out of us is through suffering. Maybe not to this degree, but he creates circumstances where we realize, I don't have anything. I have to rely on God, and that's a wonderful place to be. And notice this is the God who raises the dead. I think Paul may be alluding to the very situations where he was left for as good as dead, but by the miraculous intervention of God, he got up and went on his way. He, sh he should have been dead by all accounts. Verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. That There's his confidence. You know, he does write at the end of uh, 2, 2 Timothy 4, he knew his time was ending. Uh, but for Paul... That deliverance was being crowned by Jesus at, 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 and entering into the uh, presence of Jesus. So there's a final deliverance. God, if he's pleased, will give us little deliverances in this life. He might deliver us uh, from an awful sickness. He might deliver us from a dangerous situation. We, I've known missionaries who had bullets flying over their heads and would later write, well, I was done for. I thought I was dying. I have a note from one missionary who was in that situation, and he said, you know, um, I either need to really believe Jesus rose from the dead or he didn't. If he didn't rise from the dead, I'm pretty stupid to be here with bullets flying over my head if I'm here for Jesus. So I really better find out if I really believe he rose from the dead. I thought that was really profound, kind of one of those moments of truth. On him we have set our hope so that he will deliver us again. So I was making the point, we have many deliverances in our lives. The final deliverance is from this body into the presence of Jesus. And when he comes again, the resurrection of our bodies. There'll be no more deliverances. No more deliverances. Only paradise restored, which can't be forfeited. And then verse 11, you also must help us by prayer. So immediately solicits the prayers of the Corinthians so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul asks for prayer. People pray. God delivers. They hear about the deliverance. People give thanks. There's this lovely pattern established so that we're always praying for those in need, giving thanks for God's deliverances as he supplies them. <clears throat> if somebody is not finally delivered from death or sickness, sickness and they die, we are giving God thanks for the ultimate deliverance, for the ultimate salvation guaranteed to us through Christ. That's what a Christian memorial service is. It is a giving 
to God for the thanks and the victory of Jesus. Number three, following Jesus will cost you varying degrees of persecution. This is going to depend on where you live in church history. It's going to depend on where you live in the world. It's going to depend on a number of different things, how seriously you put yourself out there for the faith. You know that in, in, the, in the first centuries, when persecution was especially fierce, there were situations where, well, you know, a Roman soldier would stick a sword to your throat and say, Curias Caesar, Curias Christas. Is Caesar Lord or is Christ Lord? And if you said Curias Christas, your head might roll or they might feed you to the lions. Well, some people recoiled from from that and we can understand humanly why they would deny the Lord and so in the early church there were seasons where you know the persecution would come someone would deny the faith the persecution would subside they'd want to come back to church but now you had a problem what do we do with that we forgive yeah but you know what you're alive my brother's dead because he didn't deny Jesus there's a big difference between you two so they would actually, they would actually have these folks wait before they admitted them immediately back to the Lord's table to find out how genuine the faith was. Anyway, persecution varies in degree depending on lots of factors. This is the verses I alluded to earlier from Jesus in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than this master. They persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So Peter heard those words and may have given very rise to that 1 Peter 2.21 words, Christ left an example for you that you should follow and walk in his footsteps. Paul then knew from his own experience and he assures believers, promises believers, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's really cause to ask ourselves, are there situations where I compromise living like a Christian, speaking like a Christian, acting like a, like a Christian, be, giving like a Christian for fear of some sort of reprisal? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the Bible distinguishes between suffering unjustly, specifically for bearing the name of Jesus, and suffering because you deserve it when your sins incur punishment. We saw a little bit of this in 1 Peter 2. Jamie will be preaching on this passage uh, in some sub subsequent weeks. But notice how Peter distinguishes suffering because you were a jerk and suffering because you belong to Jesus. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial which comes upon you to test you. Again, that biblical perspective that trials, suffering, are tests. They're tests of our faith, our ultimate loyalties. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings so that you also, you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There is the fundamental eschatological outlook of the New Testament. I'll actually allude to it at the conclusion of my sermon today. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, or an evildoer, or a meddler, see, they suffer as consequence to their sinful actions. And there should be consequences to murdering, being a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. You, there should be consequences, but that's nothing you glory in. That's what you deserve in a just world. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, 
that I'm not be ashamed, uh, but let him glor- uh, glorify God in that name, the name of Christ. Let's see. Um, uh, do we do one more? Let's do one more. It's five. Suffering compares to pregnancy. While we suffer temporarily under the challenge of suffering, we know that the end result is life. So look at this marvelous picture from Jesus, the Upper Room Discourse. When a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Ladies who've given birth, you know this much more than we men. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, a certain promise of the resurrection, and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. It's just marvelous how kind Jesus is to prepare his disciples for those couple days of agony after he was crucified. He knew he was going to be raised from the dead. He prepares them for that agony. Did they hear it so well? Uh, There's pretty good evidence in the Gospels that it didn't quite sink in. But nonetheless, you have sorrow now. I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice. No one takes your joy from you. But there's the pattern of the Christian life. When, when we are converted, we are, we are raised from death and sorrow into the life of seeing Jesus our Savior. But guess what? He's coming again. We will see him in the flesh and will our hearts rejoice. And that's a joy no one can take from you because you'll be in everlasting joy in the presence of Jesus. I will pick up here next time and we'll bleed then in our text over into the glories that will be revealed. But you can see... Um, Uh, We're almost at the end of this handout, but I'll supply uh, point six and following in next week's handout. uh, Let me pray for us. We're grateful, our Father, uh, that your Son, our Savior, our example, suffered, but none of it was pointless. It was all redemptive. It was all purposeful. It was all that he might identify with us in our brokenness and he might bear our iniquities and our sorrows in order to purchase for us an everlasting home with you without suffering, sorrow, sickness, sadness, sin, or death. We indeed await that glory. How we pray that the hope of that glory would be in us more and more vibrantly. We pray for hope that shines brightly in us, particularly when we're in difficult situations. And I know some of my brothers and sisters have suffered immeasurably already in this life. They have suffered. It is something you've noticed. And not necessarily their faults. It is something you care about. And so we pray together for those who have suffered, who are suffering right now, who will suffer, that you, the God of all comfort, will send them grace, will send them help, will make your presence known to them, will give them hope in a future without suffering, and give them resources in the present to manage, to deal with, to be healed from, to, to endure uh, these great sufferings, knowing that when we are suffering, and it must be, that the crown of Jesus' thorns is very close to us. He is that close to us. As we are being pierced through those thorns in suffering, it means the Savior is near. So draw near to your people, and with all the comfort of heaven, and consolation, and grace, and mercy, and peace, O oh Lord, give your people what they need in this. And may we be a body of believers, this, this church, wildest church, 
who are really stellar in comforting one another in suffering and rescuing each other from our sins and helping one another. And to that end, we pray for the ministry of the deacons, thanking you for their careful work meeting the tangible, concrete needs of so many in our church family and beyond. Bless their efforts, give them wisdom, give them grace, make them a visible manifestation of the tangible help of Jesus as a loving shepherd of his people. Lord, as we go to worship, may we be equipped by your spirit to adore you and magnify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. Let me stop screen sharing. I'll see your lovely faces. There you are. Thank you. Thank you so much. You are.